You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. And welcome to the Transformative Podcast, our first ever with a speaker actually present in the room. Today here at Redset, we are joined by Dr. Eva Spisiakova, who works at the University of Vienna's Centre for Translation Studies. And uh, she is going to be talking to us about one of her multiple recent publications, specifically her monograph, Queering Translation History, Shakespeare's Sonnets in Czech and Slovak Transformations. So, Eva, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So the first thing I wanted to ask is based upon this pivotal moment for us here at Redset, which is the year 1989. You, in your work, certainly pick up on this as an important moment of caesura. What changed at this moment in the uh, research that you have done? And why? The book focuses on Shakespeare's sonnets, particularly on the fact that quite a number of those sonnets are quite possibly written for a young man, which opens up, of course, the possibilities that Shakespeare might not have been straight gasp. But when I was looking at the sonnets, the ones published before the um, 1989, funnily enough, all of them were very open about the fact that the sonnets were written for a young man. They were sometimes even enhancing um, the potential to read the sonnets in a very queer light, especially because English is a very much non-gendered language, whereas Czech and Slovak are much more gendered, so many of the poems necessitate to to actually determine the gender of the recipient, and in many of the cases, particularly in the, in the first 126 poems, uh, this was a male recipient. So those are the poems before 1989, so there is not a visible moment of censorship uh, before that, but uh, with 1989, the first translation afterwards is in 1992. This is done by a Czech um, right-wing politician um, called Miroslav Matek. And funnily enough, uh, his translation is the first and only one who not only um, doesn't translate the majority of the poems as written for a young man, but changes the gender of the recipient, even in those cases when the poem explicitly addresses a young man uh, with titles like Lord, they're using male pronouns or masculine pronouns, and Matek actually changes these to a feminine recipient, and he the whole poetry collection is packaged uh, so that it's um, written for his mistress. So it's, it changes into a very heteronormative, intersexual uh, collection of poetry. And it's quite significant that this occurs exactly after 1989. Do you find Matsek, however, representative of what happens after 1989? Is there a shift in general towards conservatism or is that only part of the story? The sonnets before 1989 are very homogenous in that they, their approach to the masculine gender of the recipient is very, very similar. Whereas after 1989, um, it suddenly starts being very diverse. So we have <clears throat> poem collections that um, address uh, the same number of masculine sonnets. Uh, we have others which sort of tone down the element of love, focusing on friendship. There are others which remove the gender completely so that uh, many of the poems remain almost like in the English original, very genderless. And Matzek is just one of those examples of going the extreme other way of, of turning the poems into female address ones. Okay, so one of the points you make in your book, which I found really, really useful, was that at first glance, maybe the higher number of kind of ostensibly homosocial or male-male same-sex kind of uh, affectionate poems 
pre-1989, at first glance, that might look quite progressive, right? That, uh, that actually there was more of an open celebration of male-male bonding in some form or another. But you have kind of cautioned against understanding this as progressiveness, per se, and that maybe that would be a kind of presentist reading that might miss a little bit of what was going on in Czechoslovakia. Can you talk about what's maybe wrong with reading those earlier translations through today's eyes and maybe with a language that's a very current one of gender fluidity and pansexuality, etc.? What we have to realize is that at this point, homosexuality was um, very much a taboo subject. So there was no discourse in public about homosexuality, about any same-sex affection. The only place where homosexuality was discussed was within medical circles, where it was seen as just a sexual deviation. And um, instead of that, we see a very strong presence of these very strong homosocial bonds between men and especially in sort of heroic narratives when we see the socialist hero with his best friend comrade or sort of overcoming all obstacles and it's very ex expressly presented to us that their relationship is stronger than their heterosexual relationships and indeed there is a lot of uh, studies that suggest that um, socialist states were organized alongside these homosocial lines especially because there was a very strong gender divide so men were spending time with men and women with women so within this type of society, if we look at the sonnets, which are very strongly expressive of just pure love, they are not explicit in, on, the, on the sexual side as we would see nowadays, or if they are, they're very much hidden within the frequently very elusive Elizabethan language, which then transforms, of course, into Czech and Slovak translations. They talk about just very, very strong feelings about love that we, of course, nowadays interpret as gay love between two men, but which would be very likely understood by the publishers and many of the translators and, of course, readers as, quote-unquote, just affection between two best friends. And indeed, when you read the um, paratextual materials, so the afterwards and forwards to these collections, uh, most of them are emphasizing this, that you, we, we shouldn't read um, nothing, quote-unquote, unnatural into these poems. They are all just expressing the sort of bonding that everyone is dreaming about with his best friend and that men, especially artists, feel very strongly. So instead of seeing the sonnets in this period as promoting <laughs> any kind of uh, what we would nowadays call same-sex love or uh, same-sex attraction, instead, I think they are just symptomatic of the very strong homosocial bonding that was supported by the regime. One of the central arguments that runs through your book is that translations can shed a really important light on a society in which that translation is made and in which it is distributed. Having looked at translations in Czech and Slovak over the course of the past century, what do you think they can tell us about Czechoslovak and then Czech and Slovak society as it has changed over the course of its existence? First of all, it's the, the angle from queer studies, which is what I was mentioning, that the way we understand um, close male relationships has changed very, very strongly. And this is, of course, not just present in uh, the sonnets, but in many other cases, uh, many other countries where, for example, we see a lot of images of, of men looking very affectionate, like pictures from 1920s, 1930s, which would, we would nowadays decode as being symptomatic of homosexual relationships or gay relationships, but which would, at the time of the pictures being taken, would be seen by the majority in a very different light. This is not, of course, to say that these pictures, or indeed the sonnets, were not read by people who were gay as symptomatic of something they were all um, feeling themselves, but for, by the larger society, so by the majority of people, they would be just seen as something, as simply a male friendship. Another thing that the sonnets show is just 
the sheer scale of uh, Czechoslovak love for Shakespeare. Ah, I think, yes, I think which this is really be, important to talk about. Yeah, yeah because um, I mean, obviously, especially during the socialist regime, there was a very much a restriction on what could be published, and one of the things that could be published were the big classics, because there was this whole thing where the part of the the socialist um, aim was to give to the masses the the treasures of world literature and Shakespeare was of course very much supported in this and there are indeed mentions that um, Shakespeare's sonnets were part of people's library of of almost everybody's library publication numbers are sometimes staggering like 200,000 editions of just one translation which was already third or fourth edition so Shakespeare was hugely popular and there are 15 different versions of his sonnets by different translators in the past hundred years and as I said some of them had very very high um, popularity and enjoyed a lot of readers so I think it just shows that socialist regime whilst not always allowing people to read as much literature as we have or the choice of literature we have today push them to read uh, things that perhaps nowadays aren't as popular as they used to be. So a couple of questions about, first of all, the kind of concrete role of the translator in Czechoslovak society then, uh, the way that you describe it, in some ways quite a powerful figure, right? A kind of gatekeeper to the world and world literature, and then in other ways perhaps not so powerful a figure in that, you know, the translator sometimes can't publish under his her name, etc. Can we talk a little bit about the translator as a kind of uh, social being, Um, And whether you think the role of the translator did change thoroughly with the revolution in 1989. Translators were perhaps much more valued than they are now in the sense that they were seen as experts in their own fields and they were very closely working together with publishing houses. Many of them mentioned that their translations would be very closely examined and that there would be a lot of not just sort of sensorial or attempts to sort of curb their uh, results, but also to, to discuss about particular linguistic anomalies and things like that. So uh, there would be a lot of involvement of the publishing house and of the translators. There would be a lot of time spent on books, much more than we see nowadays, and sort of perfecting and making sure they are as high quality as possible, uh, which of course has changed with um, 1989, where nowadays we see books sometimes pushed through the publishing process at breakneck speed. And of course, the translators have very, very tight deadlines are woefully underpaid and the the whole quality of the of the output is um, of course with some exceptions not as high as it used to be the funny thing about the sonnets is of course that we don't see the traditional model that we see in normally in doing socialism where it would be a professional translator working on a commission of sonnets there were some of them but many of these translators were amateurs Um, they were just people who just decided to translate the sonnets Uh, Partly I understand that, Um, a tiny part of me is still hoping that one day I will do my own translation because it's such a, it's such a wonderful challenge with the, with the lovely format of 14 lines. So uh, many of these, as I said, were not professionals. There is a a teacher from Eastern Slovakia who nobody has ever heard about and there are university professors and there are, as I said, politicians, there are dentists, there are just uh, people who usually did completely different works but who felt that the sonnets would be a particular challenge so uh, perhaps a little bit of an anomaly uh, within the translation scape. And then the other important character in the pre-89 history of all of this certainly would be the censor but what was really surprising to me is in your book that maybe the censor who very often when we think about literature or text coming out of East Central Europe from this communist period is given a very important role is kind of 
I don't want to say sidelined by your book, but you don't seem to find censorship in the sense of saying, no, you can't publish that being such an important part of this story. Can you talk about what you think censors were doing and maybe why they weren't doing more in the case of Shakespeare's sonnets? In many cases, censors wouldn't really touch books that were seen as um, world classics. And Shakespeare had such a huge name. He was very much a poster child for uh, the communist regime because he was the son of a glovemaker who wrote plays that were accessible to everyone for several centuries. Uh, even though, of course, some Shakespeare's plays were seen as problematic, in general, Shakespeare was very much supported and there was a lot of um, staging of his plays during this period. So because he was already approved, quote-unquote, by previous censors, um, there wasn't such a strong... A push to censor him again. So I'm expecting that somebody would have overseen that, you know, the poems are as they should be, and somebody, usually a high-ranking literary critic, who would be, of course, approved by the party, would write the afterword or foreword to the sonnets. But in general, um, censors wouldn't really have much to do with what was seen as the pinnacle of, of classic poetry, the, you know, the love poems of, of all love poems. So I think that's the reason why there was so such a little engagement with them. What can Shakespeare's sonnets, you know, originally written many centuries ago in the United Kingdom, actually tell us about a moment that we think of and often refer to as transformation, which specifically means in the Czechoslovak context, the late 80s, the early 1990s. How can Shakespeare and translations shed light on that time that we're all here trying to figure out what to do with? Because each of the translators is translating for the audience that he or she or they expect they will have, the result will inevitably also uh, be influenced not just by the sort of society, but also by the translators themselves and by the, again, constraints of, of their publishing industry and everything else. So um, as a sort of stamp that each of them had put onto the sonnets is how they imagine their readers will want to see the sonnets. Eva, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you very much for having me again. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Rezet in Vienna.